Well, let's uh, come to spend some time in the Lord's Word this morning. Um, I think I've met most of you, but in, for those who haven't met me, I'm Tim. And uh, for those of you who know Jessica, she's, she's our daughter. Um, and it's, uh, it's been my privilege to come back here from time to time and to uh, bring the word to you. And uh, I look forward to doing so again today. Um, the last couple of times I was here, I started a, a kind of, well, it, it is a series. We've been looking at the Hebrew, we've been looking at the heroes of the faith that are in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, and so if you were around the last couple of times I was here, um, we looked at um, Abel, first of all, who's the first one of those heroes mentioned, and then Enoch. And today, as Ian said, we're going to be uh, looking at Noah. Uh, so I'd like to begin by just reading uh, those first few verses of Hebrews 11. If you can turn to your uh, Bibles, we'll, t- we'll read verses 1 to 7 of Hebrews 11 and just refresh our memories of, about the beginning of that chapter. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 11 Um, I'm going to read from the ESV. Um, We read there, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for, his ho- for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Amen. Let's just bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless his word to us as we come to consider it this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples of these heroes of the faith. And as we come to uh, consider Noah this morning, we pray that you would uh, bless our consideration of him to each of our hearts. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, that there would be uh, encouragement where there needs to be encouragement, comforting where there needs to be comforting, conviction where there needs to be conviction, and strengthening where there needs to be strengthening. We pray that you would bless your word to each of our hearts this morning. Give me the words to speak, that what I say would be all that you would have me to say. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, as I said, we're going to be uh, looking at Noah uh, we, as in this series of sermons on the heroes of the faith. And so our text is going to be very simply Hebrews 11 verse 7. Uh, we're just going to work our way through Hebrews 11:7 this morning, which is that verse we already read. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we're considering the faith of Noah. Now there was a film version of Noah a few years ago that uh, some of you might have heard of and might have seen. Uh, It had some very big Hollywood names in it. I think Russell Crowe and Emma Watson were the uh, ones who topped the list. You may also remember, it was a few years ago now, but you may also remember that in the lead-up to its release there was a lot of controversy about it because it presents the story of Noah so very differently to what we find in the Bible. And so at the time in, uh, in, in newspapers and on the internet and on social media sites, uh, there was all sorts of discussions about why Christians should or so- shouldn't go to see this particular movie. And there, there was so much controversy about it that not long before the movie's release, they eventually... Uh, re- uh, released a disclaimer about it, or they added a disclaimer to the start of the movie. And, and, and it's, it basically said this. It said, The film is inspired by the story of Noah. While artistic license has been taken, we believe that this film is true to the essence, values and integrity of a story that is a cornerstone of faith for millions of people worldwide. The biblical story of Noah can be found in the book of Genesis. This was the, this was the disclaimer that was at the front of the movie, for one of the first things you saw. The big problem with the movie is that the central statement in that disclaimer is a lie. It simply is not true that that film is true to the essence, values and integrity of the biblical story. And in particular, apart from the many other inaccuracies and distortions and misrepresentations of the movie, the character of Noah himself is reinterpreted to the point that he becomes a gross and miserable travesty of the Noah of the Bible. Which is why, although I did choose to go and see the movie, I didn't care for it all all, all that much once I saw it, because... I join with the writer of Hebrews in honouring Noah as a godly man of faith. And the Noah of the movie isn't. And I don't care all that much for movies that dishonour real historical people, especially the people of God, by painting them as something completely opposite to what they really were. But there was something true in the disclaimer as well. The disclaimer says that the story of Noah is a a cornerstone of faith for millions of people worldwide. And that's true. That is true. Hebrews 11 verse 7, our text says, By faith, Noah did such and such and such and such. 
And, and it demonstrates that point, does it? That, doesn't it? That in fact Noah is a cornerstone of, or the story of Noah is a cornerstone of faith for millions of people worldwide. We can learn a great deal about faith, about our faith, from the story of Noah. Just like we've been able to learn from the stories of Abel and of Enoch in our previous two sermons. And really the the essence of the story of Noah, if, you know, the, the disclaimer talked about that essence, the essence of it is actually all summed up for us pretty much in the one verse we have there in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 verse 7. That, that verse actually does encapsulate the, the most important parts of what the story of Noah has to teach, it, teach us. And so, as I said at the beginning, we're just going to work our way through that verse and see what it's teaching us. So firstly, we've got divine warning. The verse begins, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. There's the divine warning. That really is where the story of Noah begins as well. It begins with the warning. That's what we read back, or that Ian read for us. Oh, sorry, not Ian. Chris, wasn't it? Um, read for us back in um, Genesis 6, 11 to 13. We read, now the, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, because the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth." Now, that's a warning. That's a pretty intense warning. Back when we looked a few weeks ago at Enoch, Enoch, the, the man who walked with God, you might remember that from back then that one of the things we saw there was that God gave Enoch a prophetic message of judgment for a deteriorating society. We saw that in Jude, verses 14 and 15. I'd encourage you to go back there to Jude when you have a moment and just refresh your memory regarding that very forceful and severe warning of judgment that was given to Enoch to proclaim back there in Genesis. But since Enoch, Genesis records that things had gotten worse, not better. Enoch had given his prophetic message of warning, but people had paid no attention to it. The earth was a corrupt place. It was filled with violence and wickedness. There was no love for God. There was no respect for God's laws until finally God says here to Noah, the great-grandson of Enoch, enough. Enough. I will put up with this no longer. The time has come for judgment. The message came to Enoch and the people ignored it. Things got worse and worse. And so now he gives the, the warning to Noah, great, Enoch's great-grandson, as well. By the way, you might have noticed that Noah is described with similar language to Enoch. Enoch you might remember, was described as one who walked with God. And Genesis 6 verse 9 describes Noah using the same language. Noah walked with God too. 
Noah walked with God and like Enoch, he receives this message of warning, this message of judgment. But a message with this difference, Noah was warned that the judgment is going to come in his own time. The judgment is nearly here. Universal destruction is imminent. The day of reckoning is close. Noah does two things with this message. The first thing is he believed it himself. It was, as we read here, something yet unseen. But he believed it and he acted on it. God gives him this monumental task to perform, build an ark. It took him a hundred years, but he does it. He does it, why? Because he does it because he was a man who had faith in God. And so that meant that he didn't just believe those words of God that were pleasant and soothing, the words that we like to hear. He also believed the hard things. And this was a hard thing. God's saying the world's going to be destroyed. Judgment is coming. But Noah believes him. So that's the first thing he did with it. And the second thing he did with it is he tried to warn others. Now, if you have a look at 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20, I'll just uh, encourage you to turn there as well if you can. Um, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20, I'm going to read from the New King James Version here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now those aren't the easiest of verses. There have been a lot of different interpretations of those verses over the years. Um, Some have suggested that they mean that somehow Jesus descended into hell between his death and resurrection and declared victory to the evil angels who are being held there. I don't myself think that it's what those verses are teaching. I think that they're not actually as difficult as all that. Who are being preached to? The disobedient ones now in prison. When were they being preached to? They were being preached to... In the former days, in the days of God's long-suffering, while the ark was being prepared in the days of Noah. What was being preached to them? That same message, that message of God's long-suffering, of God waiting patiently and of the opportunity to be delivered. Who was preaching to them? Well, Christ is said to have preached this message, but he is said to have done so by the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. How would the Holy Spirit have done that? Surely he did so through the mouth of Noah, his prophetic witness. The one to whom he had given this whole warning. And so it seems pretty clear that throughout the hundred years that Noah was building that ark, he wasn't just keeping this message to himself. He was warning people. 
It, was after, it is, after all, described as the period of the divine long-suffering, God waiting longer. Noah's there and he's got this warning and he's declaring to others, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, God's going to destroy the world, it's going to happen, I'm building this ark at God's command because he's going to flood the earth and destroy all life in it. Repent, come and join me, be saved. They're being warned. They're being warned because judgment is coming. It's near. Well, what do we do with that today? It's not just an interesting story for us, is it? There's actually an obvious parallel for us today. Because God in his word also gives us warning. We also, Chris also read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 24. In particular, there's verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This is talking about Christ's second coming now. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of Christ. For in the days before the flood, what were people doing? People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen. Well, they actually did know something. They Some of them at least had heard this warning, but they had paid no attention to what was going to happen. And that day dawned like any other day until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Life will be going on just as it appears to be going on. And Christ will return and judgment will have arrived and there will be no more time for repentance. That's the message that's for us today. That's what we can learn from Noah. This is what we're meant to learn from Noah. Because the world still faces judgment. The world still faces destruction for sin. There will still be a time of reckoning for the world. And we can't preach the gospel of Christ, the good news about Christ. We can't do justice to the gospel of faith without including God's warnings of judgment. And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, people, you would like to be able to leave it out, wouldn't you? I understand why in so many churches increasingly it's being left out. Because it's not pleasant. It's so much nicer to hear about God's mercy and God's love and God's grace. And it would be so nice if we could limit somehow the gospel message to that message. But it's only half the story. It's only half the story and we have to know what we need to be saved from. We have to know how serious the situation is. We have to know why we need God's love and God's mercy and God's grace in the first place. And the reason we need that is because we're sinners. Guilty. 
condemned. Unless, unless God's love and God's mercy comes to us. And it's demonstrated to us how? It is demonstrated to us in his divine warning of the judgment that is to come. He has warned us, as he warned Noah. The world is warned. Christ will return for judgment. And just like Noah believed that warning himself and tried to do his best to tell others about it, so are we to believe that warning ourselves and do all that we can to tell others about it. We preach this gospel of Christ because people are in a desperate situation. Because there will come a time of judgment, a day of reckoning. And that leads us to the next part of that verse. It says there, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear acted. Reverent fear. That was Noah's response to this warning of judgment to come. Reverent fear. And again, this is kind of part of the gospel message that people are not particularly keen on. In fact, there's a bit of a caricature around these days that old preachers, you know, they used to preach hellfire and brimstone and that was so terrible and so bad. And these days we've learnt to, uh, to, to preach more about God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and, and not put all that emphasis on the hell and brimstone because that's not nice. People like to hear that God is love, but people don't like to hear that God is a God to be, what's it say here? Feared. People don't like that. And yet, that is the proper response to warnings from God. To the message found everywhere in the Bible that we are sinners and that God is righteous and that one day there will be a reckoning. The proper response is fear. Jesus told us so himself. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus was pretty straightforward about it. The proper response when we learn that we are sinners, that we have offended almighty God, our creator, our ruler, the the one who rules over all things, the one who is the personification of all power and holiness and justice and truth, is to fear. And if you do not yet have Noah's faith, then I do say to you, fear him, fear God. But, of course, that doesn't exhaust the idea of fear that's being spoken of here. It's a fear that's described. It's called reverent fear. Reverent fear is not just being fearful of God what might do, although it should include that and does include that, but it is also, it is perhaps especially reverent fear, it is having respect for God, reverence for God. It is responding to God's 
power and holiness and justice and truth in in humble submission, acknowledging him as our Lord and Master, subjecting ourselves to him, subjecting ourselves to his rule over us, acknowledging especially his absolute right to do so. That is reverent fear, and, and that's the sort of fear that Noah is said to have had. He wasn't just afraid of what God might do, In fact, as the one who had received God's promises, he personally had the assurance of pardon. God had promised him deliverance. God had promised him life. But he had this reverent fear, this humble and willing reverence and submission to God as his God with the absolute right to command him. That's the fear of God that we ought to have. The fear of God that leads us to absolute and total and joyful submission to him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love God? I mean, is Jesus the best of all to you? Is is he what your life is all about? Wonderful. Keep my commandments. Do what I tell you. If we claim to love God, we must submit to God. The the one is meaningless without the other. And if we say, yes, yes, Jesus, I love you, do this. No, I don't want to do that. Well, then, he's right to question our love, isn't he? If we're unwilling to subject ourselves to God, we have to question whether we love him. For those who love God will submit to him wholeheartedly, completely. They will respond with reverent fear, as Noah did. And so we go on, still in our text, Hebrews 11, verse 7. It goes on, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear... He built an ark to save his household. Constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In other words, as we just said, his faith was a faith that moved him to obedient action. He heard God's word, he acted on it. And we, we, we're told the size of the project. He, it takes him 100 years to complete. He builds a ship that's one and a half football fields long. He stocks it with food sufficient to feed thousands of animals for a year. He does so in the face of the indifference and probably the mockery of all the people around about him. He does so believing in a judgment that nobody else believed in except for his immediate family. He acts on it. He does it. I don't know about you, but I think that I would have looked at that and gone, wow, what's this you're asking me to do again? Surely the temptation must have been enormous to simply throw up his hands and say, really? Is this really what you expect of me? In actual fact, though, we have not even a hint that Noah reacted in that way in the biblical record. Rather, there are some very simple words in the last verse of Genesis 6 that say just the opposite. They say, 
Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He's given this enormous list, this enormous specification. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's faith in action, isn't it? Faith in action. James says to us, James 2 verses 14 and 17, very well-known verses. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? In the same way, faith itself, if it is not a, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. None of us wants to have a dead faith, do we? I'm not particularly keen on a faith that's described as being dead. Faith without action, says James, is dead. True faith will move us to action. True faith is faith that will be seen in what we do. That was Noah's kind of faith. Noah's kind of faith was of the sort that led him to prepare an ark. And we're right to ask ourselves, well, of what sort is my faith? How is my faith to be seen in action? How does that actually change what I do from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year? But there's a bit more to it again. Because it's not just that Noah put his faith into action, it's that he did it in the way that God had commanded. He, he acted on the way of escape that God had ordained. He didn't just build any old ark, he built the ark that God had commanded him to build. His faith was not in his own ideas. He did not act according to what seemed best to him. His faith was in God, God's word and he acted according to what seems best to God. And that's an important message for us as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think the reason we're given the specifications and all their details is to, to show how, just specific, how specific God can be at times. You find it in other parts of scripture too from time to time. There are all these specifications for different things. You know, what, what's that all about? Well, the point is that people followed them. God has the right to specify what his followers may and may not do, how they are to obey. True faith will always act in obedience to the word of God. It won't seek to be informed by anything other than God's word any more than Noah was informed by anything other than God's command. The, the world loves innovation, especially when it comes to God's world, word, sadly. There are many who today seek to modify God's word, who, who, who claim that it needs to be reinterpreted somehow in the light of the supposedly greater understanding that we have now gained. You know, we know so much more than people knew back then, and so we need to reinterpret what the Bible says in, in this area of life and in that area of life, in, when it comes to human sexuality, when it comes to origins, when, and when it comes to just about anything you might like to think of. Well, does the Bible really say that or was it just saying that back then for the people back then and does it now mean something different for us today? Well, no. God's word is for all time. God's commands are for all time and we do not get to reinterpret and redesign God's, what's ultimately God's plan of salvation because all of God's word 
is directing, directing us towards God's plan of salvation. All of God's word from beginning to end is actually directing us towards the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get to reinterpret and redesign it to suit our own superior ideas. We're to join with Noah in responding like Noah. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. The end. That's how we're to put our faith our act, into action. Going on then, Hebrews 11 verse 7 still. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household, so far so good. By this he condemned the world. That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? How did Noah condemn the world? Surely in that warning that we've already spoken of, surely in that he preached judgment for sin and salvation from judgment to them, but was ignored. Noah's preaching those hundred years filled up the measure of their guilt. They had no excuse in any case for their sin and wickedness, but those who heard his message and rejected it were doubly condemned. Now, Noah surely didn't enjoy that. These were his friends. These were probably his relatives, you know, people that he knew. Noah would surely have rejoiced if even one out of all those he had preached to had seen their sin and turned to God before it was too late and joined him on the ark. But none did. His words and his actions proved to be condemnation to the world. And that is a sad but solemn truth about the gospel that we preach. It truly is salvation to those who are being saved, but death to those who are not. Scripture tells us clearly. This is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death. To the other the fragrance of life. You see, that's, that is the gospel. We can't get away from it. That is the gospel. It is either salvation or condemnation. It is either the stink of death or the fragrance of life. The gospel is never neutral. It's never ineffective. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's never ineffective. We feel like sometimes it's ineffective, don't we? We, we preach the gospel or we, we tell our friends the gospel, we talk to people about the gospel and we feel like it had no effect. It was ineffective. No, it wasn't. It did the one or the other. It did the one or the other. And you were faithful to God in preaching it, in speaking it. And it had the effect that the Lord knows it would have for that person. But it was effective. 
It is effective either in bringing salvation or condemnation, either in being the smell of death or the fragrance of life. It is always effective. So the question always has to come back to me, doesn't it? What is the gospel to me? Is it to me the stink of death or the fragrance of life? Is it to you? Am I in Noah's household saved on the ark or am I still in the world condemned to perish? Which is it? Because it's one or the other. Well then finally, the last part of the verse. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. An heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's what Noah is described as. Now, this was not something that was Noah's to begin with. We are not to read the story of Noah as if the good deserving guy got rescued and all the bad undeserving people drowned. Noah was not rescued because he uniquely deserved it. No, it was rather because, as it says in Genesis 6 verse 8, Noah found favour, which literally there means grace, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God might justly have left him with all the others. He could have done. He might justly have left the world without an escape from destruction. He could have done. But God showed Noah grace. He showed him this undeserved favour and opened his eyes and gave him faith and through faith, through faith, he receives righteousness. Through faith, he is made right with God. Through faith, he is delivered. Through faith, he is saved. And that's exactly as it is today. God might justly have left you and me, everyone in the world, with all the others. He might just, justly have left the whole world without an escape from destruction. None of us deserves that escape. But God has shown us grace. He has shown us undeserved favour. And he has given us the way of escape. He has given us Christ. Noah's Ark is a picture of Christ. That's what the Ark is. It's a picture of Christ. Christ is our ark. Christ is our way of escape from the destruction and judgment which is to come. God said to Noah, I'm going to judge the whole world, but I love you, I have chosen to save you, and so here is your way of escape, I give you this ark. God says to us, I'm going to judge the whole world, but I love you, I have chosen to save you, and so here is your way of escape, I give you Christ. I give you my son. He gives us his son and he opens the eyes of every person that he's chosen and gives us the faith by which we receive his son and become the heirs of righteousness, just as Noah was. That's the way biblical faith is always presented to us, right throughout the scriptures. It is always presented to us as both God's gift and the means by which we receive God's gift. We are called to believe, and having believed, we realise that we never would have believed if God had not given us that gift too. 
He takes us and makes us heirs of righteousness. That's what he does. And so this is Noah. This is what Noah is to us. He stands before us. The writer of Hebrews holds him up before us as an example of faith. By faith, Noah receives God's warning. He listens to God's warning. He responds with reverent fear. He acts in faith to obey in all things. In so doing, he condemns the world, but is himself declared an heir of righteousness. That's Noah's faith. What about yours? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the faith of Noah. We thank you for the grace that you demonstrated towards Noah. We are sobered as we reflect on the condemnation that came on the world in his day, the judgment that arrived. We are sobered all the more as we reflect on the fact that your word teaches us everywhere that there is a greater day of judgment coming for the world when once again all who are not yours will be condemned. We are sobered even further as we think on the fact that the very gospel is itself life to some but condemnation to others but never ineffective. But Lord, most of all, we thank you. We thank you for the reminder that you are loving, that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you have made a way of escape. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our ark. Give us each the grace that none of us may be found to be outside of him on that great day. We pray in his name. Amen.